The following episode contains descriptions of suicidal ideation. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Assalamu alaikum, friends. Welcome to Superstitions, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Alastair Murden. Across the globe, people find comfort in bizarre rituals. From the furthest reaches of civilization to right in our own backyards. On this show, we use stories to explore why we practice these superstitions, even when historians don't know where they come from. You know the feeling. A slight buzzing in your nostrils, a tickle in your sinuses. You lean back, your eyes close, and... Out it comes. A full-body sneeze. Usually, when you sneeze in public, a chorus of bless yous, gesundheits, even the odd salud greets you. It's practically universal. In most cultures on Earth, it's polite to bless someone after they sneeze. Some people connect this back to outbreaks of plague in Europe, but others think it originated even earlier. In ancient Rome, Greece, or even Egypt. This latter example is particularly interesting. See, ancient Egyptians believed a person's breath carried their soul. If they blessed each other after a sneeze, it may have been to prevent their souls from flying out of their body. And sometimes, ancient cultures believed that these blessings weren't just to keep a soul from escaping. They also kept evil spirits from coming in. If you walk through the burial chambers of such cultures, you may feel that you're intruding. Game boards lay half-played. Dates dried for a millennium wait to be eaten. It's almost like you've stepped inside a private home. So remember to be polite to your hosts and cover your mouth when you sneeze. You can find episodes of Superstitions and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Coming up, we take a journey to the Valley of the Queens. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. For the first time in a very long time, Kenza felt aware. She had been between things as long as she could remember, between breaths, between worlds, between heaven and earth. She couldn't recall why she stayed in this limbo. It was to protect something. But what? In life, it had been her duty to the kingdom, to her people. The borders of Egypt were her borders, to be passed on to her children when she died. Now, a feeling of expectation drew her back to the tomb. No sigh had disturbed the stolid air for millennia. No footsteps echoed in the corridors. No light pierced the darkness she'd known for so long. 
but it was unmistakable. Somewhere, someone was coming. Excitement burned in Dr. Ruby Cooper's belly as she scrambled up the last ridge. Finally, after years of fundraising, grants, three connecting flights, two taxis, and one particularly disgruntled motorboat skipper, she was almost there. Ruby leaped up the last few feet and found herself overlooking a massive, sun-baked gorge. Nestled at the far end was a long, low temple. The Valley of the Queens. The sun was already high and climbing higher as Ruby approached the dig site. She mopped the sweat from her brow and smiled. She was so close, nothing, not even the scorching heat, could dampen her mood. If all went well, which it should, since Ruby planned it that way, then the next 24 hours would change her life forever. For years, academic consensus held that the Valley of the Kings and its counterpart, the Valley of the Queens, had been fully explored. But Ruby knew they had to be missing something. After joining the British Museum staff, she badgered the directors about funding a dig. Finally, after months of campaigning, she got a meeting with the vice chairman. Walking into his office on the top floor of the museum, Ruby was immediately caught off guard by the snarling stuffed bear that towered behind his desk. In retrospect, she supposed that's exactly why he put it there. The vice chairman, a severe man in an Italian suit, barely let her get five minutes into her pitch before he put his hand up to stop her. Did you really think we'd fund an entire expedition based on a hunch? He had said. There's nothing left in that valley but sand. Ruby bristled. She couldn't stand being talked down to. But the rejection only cemented her resolve. She would prove to the museum that she knew what she was doing. She sought out like-minded Egyptologists assembling a ground team. And when the lead archaeologist, Dr. Amira El Awad, called her at three in the morning, Ruby knew exactly what she was going to say. They'd found it. An undiscovered tomb. Ruby couldn't imagine what kind of treasures were waiting deep under the sand. But she smiled, picturing them displayed back at the British Museum. The Cooper collection had a nice ring to it, she thought. A shout came from the small white tent near the center of the dig, and a rust-colored figure hurried toward Ruby. As she drew closer, Ruby realized it was a mirror. Her hijab had once been white, but every inch of her body had been completely covered in dust. Dr. Cooper, she shouted in greeting, welcome to the Valley of the Queens. To Ruby's surprise, Amira reached out her arms and drew her into a tight bear hug. Ruby could feel the dust tickling her nose. She pulled back, but it was too late. She whipped her head back in an enormous sneeze. Alhamdulillah, Amira said. Off Ruby's puzzled look, she explained, it means praise be to God, like how you'd say God bless you. Ruby smiled. Amira continued, the ancient Egyptians considered it essential to bless someone after a sneeze. They thought the breath carried someone's soul. If you didn't say, bless you, 
You might sneeze it right out of your body. Ruby's eyes narrowed. Wasn't that the Romans, she thought. She tried to remember, but couldn't. Not good. Something about Amira rubbed Ruby the wrong way. Amira, oblivious to Ruby's growing ire, gestured for her to follow. You're just in time, she said. We're about to crack her open. Ruby noticed a large shadow on the ground just beyond the dig's central tent. It grew until it was a long, rectangular ditch big enough to fit a city bus. This is the motherload, Amira said. Fifteen feet down, at the bottom of six carved sandstone steps, was an enormous slab of limestone. A man crouched next to it, connecting wires to dynamite piled next to the boulder. The man signaled to Amira, then clambered up out of the ditch. She turned to Ruby and asked if she was ready. But before Ruby could answer, Amira shouted something and the man triggered the detonator. The dust cleared slowly, revealing a simple stone door. Ruby gasped. Who's inside? She breathed in excitement. Amira smiled. I don't know, but you're going to help us find out. Ruby could feel her heart beating rapidly as she filed into the dark stone corridor behind Amira. There was no telling what might be inside. Visions of perfectly preserved wrappings and canopic jars danced in Ruby's head. With any luck, she'd be returning to the British Museum with their biggest haul in over 100 years. Lost in thought, Ruby hadn't noticed that Amira stopped short in front of her. She crashed into the woman. Watch where you're going, Ruby snapped, annoyed. Amira ignored her. Instead, she stared intently at a series of hieroglyphics on the wall. Under the layers of dust, Ruby could make out a bird with the head of a woman. Ruby actually knew this one, but before she could speak, of course, Amira beat her to it. This must be the bar of the woman buried here. She turned to Ruby. The part of her spirit that remains after death, it's where the personality comes from. I know what it is. Ruby whispered sharply. But Amira merely continued on down the passageway. Ruby fumed. She'd worked for years to get to this moment, and here was some stuck-up local academic talking to her like she was an undergrad. Ruby would not be made to feel stupid. Shouts came from the front of the procession. Ruby rushed towards the sound, pushing herself past Amira in the process. Serves you right she thought as Amira stumbled. The long corridor abruptly came to an end. There, embedded in the rock, was a small, ancient-looking wooden door. A clay tablet still laid over the handle, a seal, unbroken after thousands of years. Ruby drew a penknife from her jacket and carefully cut the long cords of woven papyrus tying the seal in place. She wrapped it in a piece of cloth and carefully handed it to the digger beside her. She turned back to the team waiting behind her and flashed a grin. Onward, she said, and pulled the door open. A wall of warm, stuffy air rushed out of the newly opened room as if the tomb was sighing in relief. 
Ruby stepped into the room. She raised her lantern high, and the group gasped. In one corner, a table laden with golden dishes and clay trinkets sparkled in the light. In another, statues of gold, limestone, and brilliant blue lapis lazuli stood like sun-dipped guardians. But it was the thing in the center that caught everyone's attention. A stone sarcophagus, short and boxy. Ruby pulled her camera out of her bag. She felt like she was going to burst with excitement. This was the discovery of the century, and, with any luck, the key to her place in history. I want to make sure we recreate it exactly at the British Museum, she said as she snapped photos. I want everyone to be able to walk into this tomb just like we did. She gestured to the workmen waiting in the passageway and pointed to different artifacts around the room, commanding that they be brought to the surface. Amira turned to her, a quizzical look on her face. British Museum? she asked. I thought this was going to Cairo. Ruby laughed, a mean laugh. Cairo's a joke. All this deserves to be in a proper collection where it can be shared with the world. Ignoring Amira's glare, Ruby turned back to the sarcophagus. Whoever this lady is, she's lucky she got her beauty rest. She's the star of our collection. Speaking of which, they needed to hurry up and open the coffin already. The dust down here made Ruby's allergies act up something awful. Again, she felt it, that tickle, traveling all the way into her brain. Ruby took a deep breath in and sneezed. As soon as she did it, Ruby knew something was wrong. Green lights danced in front of her eyes. A high-pitched mosquito whine rang in her ears. She fell to her knees. It felt like every atom of her body was being pulled in a different direction. Then, just as suddenly as it started, it stopped. Ruby couldn't feel the strange sensation anymore. In fact, she couldn't feel anything anymore. She tried to take a deep breath, but she couldn't get any air. That's when she looked down and saw that lying on the floor in front of her was her, her body at least. Of course, she thought, you're having an out-of-body experience. She'd read about them before, about people dreaming they floated above their own bodies. If she could get this, whatever it was, ghostly form back to her body, she was sure it would be over in a flash. But that's when, to Ruby's surprise, her body sat up. The Ruby that was not Ruby rubbed her eyes, shook her head as if concentrating, then looked straight at her. Coming up, Ruby gets into the spirit of things. Every so often, something so impactful happens, it has the power to capture the attention of a whole country. An event so deadly or dumbfounding, it has no choice but to live on in infamy. 
Hi, Parcasters. It's Ashley Flowers, and I'm exposing the most sinister cases from the darkest corners of the globe in my new true crime limited series, International Infamy. Every Tuesday, come along as I guide you on a wicked world tour. 15 different countries, 15 infamous crimes. Take a trip to Iceland, where six people confessed to a murder that never actually happened. Journey to Mexico, where a Lucha Libre wrestler moonlights as a serial killer. And travel to New Zealand, where two friends hatch a deadly plan to become famous. Each episode of International Infamy explores the twists and turns of a notoriously high-profile case, zeroing in on the cultural details which make the crime unique to its location, and explaining why it couldn't have happened anywhere else. Follow my new Spotify original from ParCast, International Infamy with Ashley Flowers, and catch a new episode every week. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. It had been a while since Kensa had limbs. So when they came back to her, it was a shock. She suddenly had a dull, aching awareness of arms and legs. When she tried to move them, they wouldn't respond. Kensa wasn't accustomed to being disobeyed. She ordered her heavy limbs to listen to her. Finally, she felt the fibers of her abdomen muscles flex as she sat up, felt the ligaments expand and contract. She couldn't see anything, just a rose-tinged glow with snaking red branches. After a moment, she realized they were blood vessels. She was seeing the inside of a pair of eyelids, her eyelids. With immense effort, she opened her eyes. The last place she remembered was the palace, but instead of being in her own lavishly decorated chambers, she found herself in a stone room crowded with junk. In the very center, a large carved chest sat in a place of honor. A burial chamber, she thought. My burial chamber? Floating just above it was something. A small speck of light, a shiver in the air, an almost invisible thing. Though it had no eyes or face, she could sense that its attention was fixated on her. Of course, she thought. It's the bar that belongs to this body. She'd heard of things like this before. She'd always instructed her daughter, Semet, to bless someone when they sneezed. Even the Greeks do it, she explained to the little girl. They say, Zeus preserve you. They call on their gods and we must call on ours. Because without their protection, your breath can carry your bar right out of your body. Yes, she knew what happened to the free-floating bar, but she had no idea what was happening to her. Only evil spirits could inhabit a person when they sneezed. Something prickled at the very back of Kensa's mind. She ignored it and raised the body's pale white arm, watching the muscles under the skin contract as she flexed her fingers, curling them into a fist. Well then, she thought, I guess I am the evil spirit. A dark-eyed woman in a veil approached her then, saying words that Kensa didn't understand. She seemed concerned and held out her hand. 
The feeling in Kensa's head grew louder as the woman pulled her to her feet. Now, it was like the buzz of a large insect. Finally, the sensation became words. A small, fearful voice whispered from behind Kensa's left ear. What are you? Then, with more confidence, Get out of there! That body's mine! Kensa turned and found herself face to face, or at least consciousness to consciousness, with the displaced bar. A scraping noise came from behind Kensa. She turned to see two men in strange clothes dragging a large carved table toward the door. Someone had piled dusty knickknacks high atop it, mostly eating utensils and decorations. But Kensa shouted in alarm when she saw it, making them drop it to the floor. She ran to the table and picked up a small carved wooden cat. Its contours felt familiar in her hands. She stroked the smooth, polished wood, examined the bronze teeth, which still glinted dully after all these years. Even the string at the top, the one that opened and closed the little cat's jaws, hadn't rotted away completely. It was Semat's favorite toy. Kensa looked around the room again, this time really paying attention to the junk piled in the corners. There was Semet's little headrest, which she used to sleep at night. Her carved wooden doll with clay beads in its long hair. Finally, Kensa realized what the stone box in the center of the room was. It was a tiny, child-sized sarcophagus. This wasn't Kensa's tomb. It was her daughter's. Kensa breathed rapidly. Her tongue was heavy and sluggish in her mouth. She knew she had died. But Semat was just a child. Even without her mother, she should have had an entire lifetime left. Kensa realized with a start that this was why she'd been stuck between worlds for so long. She still needed to protect Semat. But first, she needed to get away from the strange people in the tomb. The cool dark of the cave was a stark contrast to the desert outside. Kensa winced, the magnified sunlight reflecting off the sand, feeling like it was going to burn her eyes out of her skull. A movement off to her left caught Kensa's attention. A worker placed a bundle of red cylinders into a small cave carved into the cliff face where the ridge met the valley floor. He hurried away, unrolling a spool of dark wire. He positioned himself behind an overturned wheelbarrow and held a device with a small red button aloft. As Kensa watched, he pressed the button and the desert erupted. Kensa bolted in fear, taking shelter under the white tent close by the tomb. When she looked back, a giant cloud of dust and sand hovered over the worker. The man, apparently unharmed, was already pouring through the rocks the blast had brought to the surface. Finally, Kensa realized what had happened. He'd controlled the explosion. The voice buzzed again in the back of Kensa's head. What's happening? Where are you going? It cried desperately. Come back with my body! Kensa looked around, finally realizing she was in the middle of a work site. 
there were dozens of workers moving objects to the surface. They examined the pieces under a white canopy, brushing off centuries of dirt and dust. Further away, a man wrapped the clean objects in cloth and placed them in large wooden boxes. Kensa turned on the floating spirit. What are they doing? She hissed. Where are they taking my Semet's things? The voice buzzed again. This is my dig. These are my artifacts. They're going to a new home in England. Kensa bristled at this. She didn't know where this England was, but these were Semet's toys to comfort her in the afterlife. They couldn't take them. Don't you understand? The spirit continued. These are going to teach everyone about your life, about your daughter's life. A little girl is going to go to the museum and be able to learn about another little girl, not that different from her, who lived 3,000 years ago. As the bar spoke, four men emerged from the tomb. Slowly, they hoisted something up to the surface. Millennia-old bandages, blackened with age, wrapped the tiny body tightly. A gold mask showed a sleeping, angelic face. A single dark spiraling curl poked out from underneath the death mask. The voice continued, Give me back my body, and Semet will live forever. Don't you want that for your daughter? Something simmered deep in Kensa's belly. It was a familiar feeling, but one she hadn't felt so viscerally in a very long time. Rage. No matter how coolly Ruby tried to behave towards the thing occupying her body, she was panicking. The possessed Ruby had already freaked out Amira and the others below in the tomb. One more outburst like that and her professional reputation would be in tatters. Stop them, the possessed Ruby said, her voice surprisingly calm and even. If you want this body back, you'll stop them from looting the tomb. Ruby blinked, or rather imagined herself blinking, in surprise. She couldn't just stop them. This was years of work. The permits alone had taken months. I can't do that, she said. Her possessed body nodded as if it had expected that answer. Then it turned on its heel and started walking. Ruby had to rush to keep up. Where are you going? She asked. The body pointed towards the horizon. West. You can't, Ruby said, sliding into desperation. It's nothing but desert. You'll die. No, the body replied in that calm, measured voice. You'll die. A wave of panic crashed over Ruby. Her reputation was the least of her problems. What would happen if her body was gone? Would Ruby continue to float around the desert, untethered forever? Or worse, would she simply disappear? She had no choice. Hey, whoever you are, she began. Kensa, the body said, cutting her off. Ruby continued. You got me. 
I'll help you put all your daughter's stuff back. All you have to do is tell them what I say. What Ruby didn't say was that the second she had her body back, it was straight to the British Museum. It took some convincing. As Kensa repeated back the syllables that Ruby sounded out for her, she could see the incredulity on the workers' faces. The woman in the veil, Amira, was the hardest to convince. Are you sure you're okay? She kept asking Kensa over and over. Kensa couldn't blame her. She was surely butchering the words. But Kensa merely nodded each time and told her they needed to put everything back in the tomb. It took another hour. But finally, just as the sun kissed the desert ridge and the jackals began to howl, four workmen carried a beer into the tunnel. Samat's small body was returning home. Kensa followed them, making sure they took care with Samat, setting her down gently in her stone coffin. She placed a hand on the little figure's golden cheek and closed her eyes. She imagined she could feel warmth flushing her skin, her soft breath, her fluttering pulse. But when she opened these strange eyes once more, the illusion shattered. We'll be together again soon enough, little one, Kensa thought. As the workers filed out of the tomb, Ruby's angry voice buzzed again at the back of Kensa's skull. I played your game. I put the stuff back. Now, can we finally switch? Kensa ignored it, walking towards the corridor. She closed her eyes as she reached the entrance, feeling the cool night air of the desert on her skin. It was a different cold from the chill of the tomb. She breathed deeply, wanting to absorb as much as she could of this final bit of fresh air. She noticed a pile of small red cylinders near the door with wires sticking out of them. She recognized them. This was what the workers were using to make explosions. This had opened the tomb and woken her up. Kensa, give me my body back now. Kensa flinched at the sharpness of Ruby's voice, but otherwise didn't react. She picked up a pile of dynamite and turned quickly, retreating into the depths of the tomb. Ruby screamed, her voice barbed like a hook in Kensa's brain. Kensa pushed onwards toward the burial chamber, dropping a dynamite stick every few feet, wire connecting them like a string of pearls. She could feel her pace slowing, her muscles resisting. It was wrong for a strange spirit to occupy a body for so long. Ruby's car, the life force that animated her body, was fighting back. She sank to her knees at Samat's side, her head ringing with pain and noise. The final piece of the explosive chain was in her hand, a small red button, just like the one the man had used on the surface. Ruby was shouting, commanding her to return her body. You stole it! It's not fair! You stole it! Ruby cried over and over. Kensa felt like she could barely raise her head. But one final time, she fixed Ruby's spirit with an icy gaze. You took from me, she said, 
I take back. She pressed the button. Somewhere far away, an explosion ripped through the ancient stone door. Kensa smiled, imagining the pile of rubble, the corridor collapsing section by section. An intense rush of hot wind streamed into the chamber. It won't be long now, little one, Kensa thought. Everything faded, swirling into noise. The noise of Ruby's voice crying, of her body wheezing and choking, fighting for air. The sound of the explosions growing closer and closer as the heat and dust of the final explosion blasted towards Kensa. She smiled. No, it wouldn't be long at all. Today's story was inspired by ancient beliefs dating back to some of the oldest human civilizations, Rome, Greece, and Egypt. For thousands of years, humans have seen a simple sneeze as a dangerous threshold. Without a blessing, you could exhale your very own soul. Or even more dangerous, inhale the forces of evil. The ancient Egyptians had a lot of specific beliefs about the spirits and what happens after death. According to different sources, someone's soul had up to nine separate parts, but the two pieces that are closest to what we think of as a soul are the ka and the ba. The ka is someone's life force, the energy that keeps them physically alive, while the ba is their personality and what makes them unique. Ancient Egyptians believed that the bar wasn't tethered to a particular place. It would still visit the body after death and travel between the afterlife and the places a person loved while they lived. Just like Egyptians back then wanted to prevent evil spirits from controlling their bodies, many Egyptians today want the same thing. For over a century, Foreign organizations like museums and universities have controlled the discovery, preservation, and housing of some of Egypt's greatest treasures. As archaeologist Serena Love put it in an article for Popular Science, there's a deeply rooted colonialist attitude of they're not capable of taking care of their own heritage. And this issue becomes even stickier when human remains come into play. Because after all, some of the most famous ancient Egyptian artifacts were once living people. But things are changing. In the past decade, artifacts from museums and private collections have streamed back into Egypt. And in 2019, archaeologists discovered 30 perfectly preserved mummies in Luxor, one of the biggest Egyptological discoveries in almost 100 years. The team that dug it up? 100% Egyptian. So let's mind our manners like the ancient Egyptians. Cover your mouth when you cough and say a blessing when someone sneezes, because you never know what or who might be floating around out there. Thanks again for listening to Superstitions. We will be back Wednesday with a new episode. 
You can find more episodes of Superstitions and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Until next time, be wary of the things you cannot explain. Superstitions is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Erin Larson. This episode of Superstitions was written by Molly Quinlan, with writing assistance by Robert Teamstra and Greg Castro, fact-checking by Anya Bailey, and research by Brian Petrus. I'm Alastair Murden. Hi, listeners. It's Ashley Flowers, and here's a quick reminder to check out my new true crime limited series, International Infamy. Every Tuesday, I'm taking you across the globe to look at 15 of the most notorious crimes from 15 different countries. Some stories are sure to shock, some may leave you stumped, but all are quite the trip. Follow my new series, International Infamy with Ashley Flowers. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.